I always like saying this. Uh, before I speak, I'd like to say something. <laughs> and, and that is this. Um, it, it's been a wonderful experience for me to have uh, a namesake in the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, and so John, the beloved disciple, has just been a very special person to me uh, throughout the course of my life. And, um, and he writes things in his gospel that are not in any of the other gospels. And so he includes the personal touch that just aren't found, uh, even though Matthew uh, was a disciple of Jesus and called by Jesus. Uh, John adds some color to the story that I just really feel is, can be beneficial to us. And one of those things is the only time that it mentions that Jesus was living somewhere is in John chapter 1, where the disciples were told by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin and sins of the world. And so uh, John uh, went and followed Jesus, and uh, I believe it was he and Andrew, um, not exactly remembering, but um, they said, where do you live? Where do you abide? And Jesus said these words uh, to, his, to those two men, come and you will see. Come and you will see. And the message, this message is entitled, coming to see. Coming to see. And so, if you would just stand with me uh, just to read the first letter of John, the first chapter, and I'm just going to be reading four verses for you. This is coming out of the English Standard Version. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life. Which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Amen. Please be seated. John, this uh, beloved disciple, became a disciple around the year 30. And now he's writing almost 60, 60 years later. And he, he's had the benefit of seeing some changes in the church throughout the course of those 60 years. And <clears throat> now uh, he's dealing with, and he's writing a letter uh, to the churches in Asia Minor. And... The church is very innovative. It always comes up with new ideas uh, to change the message. 
to innovate, to make it more relevant, make it more culturally uh, current. And uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, what is called Neoplatonism or the Gnostic uh, uh, philosophy that somehow or other flesh, human flesh, was evil. It was the source of all of our problems, and nothing could be better than death to be ridded of this flesh. And so there was a despising of human flesh. And this philosophy taught that Jesus had not come in the flesh, that somehow or other he was more of an appearance, and that um, I won't go into the details of Gnosticism, but John is playing with this word and uses the word to know because Gnosticism was a knowledge, a deeper knowledge. And I've loved it in the church because we always come up with deeper knowledge. And uh, it's only for the initiated, for the deep. And uh, I have had the benefit of being, uh, I, you know, I have, I have two very strange uh, upbringings in the church. One was my uh, mother was a Spanish Pentecostal Assembly of God church, and I saw all kinds of craziness for the first uh, uh, 12 years of my life. And uh, when we moved out to the suburbs, and believe it or not, Jamaica, Queens, by then, back in 58, was the suburbs. And uh, uh, when I discovered a Presbyterian church where the service was only one hour long, Plus, Allison attended there. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, you know, you know, all of a sudden I had the revelation that I was going to become a Presbyterian. <laughs> and so I've had this, you know, the uh, just absolute zoo of, at, my, at my mother's church. And then, can they fog a mirror? You know, uh, <laughs> are they alive? You know, so that, that was the, the kind of the, the currency of my growth uh, in the faith. But I, I want to just share this because it's coming and come from a very personal perspective because I'm, I've been a believer for over 60 years. And, uh, you know, and I want to talk uh, to you guys. I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to talk to my grandsons that are back there. And uh, the rest of you can eavesdrop, but I'm, I'm just, because, you know, I went forward when I was 13 years old, and, and quite frankly, that was like paid up life insurance, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go to hell, better to go to heaven than to go to hell. And so that was about the extent of my commitment to the Lord Jesus. And it didn't take much. I mean, I, 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 I didn't read the Bible. I didn't pray. I didn't witness. I, I didn't do all kinds. Of, so there wasn't a whole lot going on but when I received the Lord. I, I just went to save my hide. That was about it. When I went to college, um, which is now over 60 years ago, uh, I, you know, I... Um, I remember t talking to one of my college buddies and just saying, I, I don't know that I believe what I believed back then. 
I, I think I went forward just, you know, just to get my mother off my back and my brother off my back. And I don't know that I... And something inside of me, it was like I was lying to myself. I was lying about something fundamental to me. And I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew that I had done something extremely wrong by making that confession. So I made a deal with God. That's, that's what I want to talk to you guys about because... Uh, and the young lady is also included, if she'd like. And that is this. Um, I made a deal with God. I said, Lord, my faith hasn't meant much up to this point. It hasn't made any kind of an impact on my life that I can see. But if you give me genuine faith, if you draw my heart and bring conviction to my soul that you're real and this whole thing is real, and I, this was the great prize I was offering God. <laughs> I will give you me. <laughs> Such a deal. And won't you be happy? You know, you'll be thrilled. And so, you know, I, I, but that happened. And I've been a serious follower of Jesus for over 60 years. And even though I was a serious follower, it wasn't until I was 22 years old that I became a lover of God. And it was during a dreaded week of prayer. And I said dreaded week because... And, and this is maybe going to encourage the rest of you, and that is this. If you've struggled with spiritual disciplines, if you've struggled with praying or reading the Bible, or uh, like Trish was confessing, you know, I'm not there yet. Well, during this week, and, and, and when I say dreaded, it was nine hours of prayer for five days. Who has that much to pray about? 45 hours of prayer. Really? And so in the very first service, the, somebody stood up. And, and I'll tell you, my first reaction was, I'd like to kill that guy. Because he read Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to ask him questions and to inquire in his temple. And my initial response was, Lord, I'm as far from there, I'm as far from that sentiment as the moon. That isn't, that isn't me. But I want it to be. I don't know how to get there. But if I'm going to make it in this life, you're going to have to capture my heart and do something in me that I can't do in myself. 
You know, because I had this picture of heaven. You know, it's going to be a church service forever. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I just didn't feel like I was very spiritual. And here I'm being called into the ministry. You need to be spiritual for that, I, I would think. You know, and so I, I just wasn't there. So my life has been one of conversion, coming to see, coming to see. Jeff shared a message on Easter Sunday where God opened up the eyes of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he was known to them by the breaking. Of their, then their eyes were opened and they could see. My prayer for you is that God would open each one of our eyes and that we would see and that we would see the treasure that is not doesn't come into our midst, but comes with us when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> uh, each successive encounter with the Lord has been a greater coming to see. And I'm grateful today that I'm still joyful and still confident in the truth of the message. I'm grateful that the message, that the truth, that the Holy Spirit has kept me and um, kept me alive in him. I've seen the church grow. I've seen the church flourish, not just this church, but the church in general. I've seen the church distracted and disillusioned. I've seen it go through many, many of the, its cycles. Allison and I moved to Virginia in 1974, almost 50 years ago. And uh, we didn't know what Oakley was, but back then, in 1974, Oakley was the only drug on the market. And by that, I mean that here in central Virginia, people were driving from Virginia Beach, from Danville, from Lynchburg, from Harrisonburg, from Richmond, and from uh, West Virginia to come to Oakley. And here was a place where those of you, how many of you have seen the movie The Jesus Revolution? Wow, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but by the grace of God, we lived it. I saw more people come to Christ during the course of that time than I have in, in the whole of my life. And at Elam, where we had that dreaded week of prayer, we would, the Spirit of the Lord would fall on us and we would worship and sing to the Lord. You know, sometimes we sing to the Lord the, the songs that are on the board. But then there are times in which God gives you a little blank thank you note and you just fill it in yourself and you just sing. And we would just sing 
to God because the song just went on unending and there was no effort. Uh, you know, uh, an hour would go by and people would still be singing, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And Oak Lee was that for us. The Spirit of God would just fall and we would just experience this wonderful reality of seeing. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes the Spirit to awaken us that the Spirit is within us. And it is the Spirit that enables us to see spiritual things. It isn't just a matter of brilliance. It isn't just a matter of the right atmosphere. It is the Spirit of God among us that enables us to see the things of the Spirit. And that has to be developed in each of our lives. It doesn't happen automatically because I'm warming a seat. And so my prayer is that you will come to see. And uh, <clears throat> so I, and I, I've come to a greater appreciation of what the apostles witness in terms of our need to remain faithful to the truth of the message. Our calling is not to be innovative. Our calling is not to come up with new and jazzy ideas about how to make this relevant to people. Our calling is to be faithful to the truth that was delivered to us. So that Paul says to Timothy, and I'm going to say this twice, Paul says to Timothy, the things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, I'm not just the only one, the same commit unto faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. This is how the message is proclaimed and delivered from generation to generation. It is through this process of sitting here patiently like you are that somehow or other, things begin to happen inside of your heart. And what was foolishness to you at one point, all of a sudden starts to make sense. You begin to see it because you've been exposed to the truth of the word. <clears throat> and, and I just also want to say this. Whatever you put on par with the word of God, whatever you put alongside of it, in some instances, people have put tradition alongside of the scripture, and tradition eats up the scriptures. Some people are putting their political views alongside the scriptures, and their political views trump the scriptures, or their social views, or whatever is feeding your intellect. Whatever you put alongside, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but stands, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits, Psalm 1, verse 1, nor sits in the seat of the scorners, the critics. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it doth he meditate day and night. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. What is feeding your soul? Because what you're relying on and leaning on will eventually trump the scriptures. And I say trump in this sense. I'm not referring to our former president, by the way. But, I, you know, whatever you put alongside of the word of God in terms of what you're receiving, being instructed by, eventually, so that eventually I hear people contradicting the Bible in order to stay current and to be relevant. And I'm just telling you, our calling is to remain faithful to the message, to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And the disciples and apostles did not hesitate to continue to remain faithful to that message no matter what. Amen. Now, and just like John opened his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning. You know, John chapter 1, verse 1. Just like he opened up his gospel, John is writing this letter with a very deep sense of awe. And I've been meditating on this letter for the whole month because I just feel John... Uh, racking his brain, doing his best to make what was tangible to him tangible to us. And rather than in any way uh, kind of falling prey to this notion that there was some deeper knowledge that denied the reality of the person of Jesus, he is doing his best uh, to communicate the power of his experience, which was very, still very fresh in John's memory. And he pulls back the curtain at the mystery. I remember when Allison and I first came to the um, Grand Canyon. Anyone been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. You're looking at it, but do you see it? I know it's in front of my eyes, but I'm not grasping the enormity of what I'm seeing. Do you all know what I'm saying? There seems to be a membrane between us and the reality. Just like look up into the sky. Sailing at night, you get to see you're in a planetarium, and you see stars like you've never seen stars ever, and you're trying to appreciate it, but if you don't come away with, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him, Lord, you are great, and if what you've made is great, you are greater than everything that you have made, amen, Amen. and so, uh, So John is trying to communicate what he saw in the person of Jesus. He was more, much more. And they said these words. He was the embodiment of the eternal God.
You know, he said, we saw him. We saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. We handled him with our hands. And we, we gazed, we stared at him. So he's, John isn't just reminiscing about the past. Oh, that was great. You should have been there. Oh, I wish you had been there. No, no. He's doing more than reminiscing. Because Jesus Christ is very much alive. And he was very much alive to John right then and there. So John is writing so that his readers might have fellowship with the apostles. And there was a ref, theirs was a referential fellowship because their fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. And the goal of Christ as we gather in the name of Jesus is that we would become aware, come to see that he is in our midst. You are come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the city of the firstborn, and to Jesus Christ. So we don't just come to hang out with each other as much fun as we are. It is to be together. We come to join the assembly that's already assembled in eternity. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. And when we founded Christ Community Church, I said, Lord, if your presence is not here, we're out of business. We can only exist and we can only be effective. And we can only... What is it that humbles human pride? Not that it needs to be humbled. (laughs) But isn't it the greatness of God? Isn't it coming to see that he's big and you're small? He's great and we're not. And just, this is for free. He comes to reveal himself to us so he can fill us with himself. Be sufficient. So that we forget about ourselves. And give ourselves away. So the goal ultimately isn't me or you. The ultimate goal is him. That he may be revealed. That he may be glorified. That the world may know. That's the goal. And so he, he wants to bring us. Cause us to see. Fill us with himself. So that we become like himself, like what we see. So, okay, too long. Okay, so I, I had five things to say. I haven't gotten to one yet. <laughs> so I, let me just summarize them, okay? This is for Allison's sake. Allison, if you're out there. She's working today, by the way. So She worked today so that I could do this. So 
Thank God for her. But John talks about the life was manifest. We've come to testify of that life. Bear witness. That life is the eternal life that dwells inside of you. So that you may have fellowship. This is the purpose of those first four verses. So that you may have fellowship with us. And the ultimate result will be that our joy, our corporate joy, would be made full. So let me see if I can get past one. The life was made manifest. You know, Jesus, John isn't just saying Jesus was born. You don't talk about somebody special with those words, Jesus was born. You don't use the expression, was made manifest, until until you're talking about something much greater than what we're used to thinking about or seeing. So that John is describing his experience of coming to see. Just like it says in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word, the eternal word, became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. And we, here's the word, discerned his glory. It was just, it was more than we noticed. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what we saw. And so for the disciples, it was a growing awareness so that when Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he did not realize the enormity of what he had just said. He said it with such power and conviction on the day of Pentecost, but he, he realized, this is who you are. You are the one we've waited for. And the life was made manifest. Spiritual awareness, in my opinion, is a growing awareness of seeing. And I've got to use this analogy because it was, it was one of the most concrete expressions of seeing that I've experienced. I would go fishing with Alan Atwell. We would go out in the woods. And going out in the woods with Alan Atwell was like... Uh, Just an adventure, because he said, oh, here's where the deer were. Here's where the, you know, this was happening. This is where the um, otters were. This is where the, um, what are the things with the flat tails? The beavers were gnawing trees. Here's where where the cover is. Here's where the fish are. Here's where the, 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 in this deep hole. So we would go. And some people like to fish. I like to catch. 
But here, I, I'm from New York City. I didn't have that experience, okay? Trees, leaves. Water, that's it, you know? So as I would walk through the woods, Alan would let me see what I was seeing. And for me, the scriptures are our guidebook to be able to see the things that are in the Spirit. And so this isn't made up. I was seeing those things all along. They were coming to my eyes, but I wasn't interpreting. I wasn't discerning what the woods were saying. And so here's John uh, making us aware that uh, this requires the Spirit of God to open our eyes to what is obvious with those with spiritual eyes. That was number one. Number two, and we testify to it. And, and the word testify, witness, in the Bible uh, is a powerful word because it comes from the derivative of martyr. So when you bore testimony, you gave your life. That's a good way to prove whether or not you believe what you're saying. If you bear testimony to this, it's going to cost you everything. I mean, the word martyrion came to mean a martyr. Someone who gives their life. You know, the scriptures tell us in, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 19, in the mouth of every uh, of, uh, two or at most three witnesses, let every word be established. John, in his gospel, calls on seven witnesses. You know, he says, John, the Baptist, will bear testimony of me. The Father at his baptism, bore witness to him. The Holy Spirit was going to bear witness to him. He came down and fell on Jesus in the form of a dove. His works would testify, bear witness that he was who he said he was. The scriptures bore witness to Jesus Christ. Christ himself bore witness to himself, who he was, bore witness to the truth. And then of the disciples, he said, you will be my witnesses. And you will give your life for what you believe. The disciples were not shy about calling on witnesses. The, the disciples understood that this message needed to be corroborated. And so... When Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the gospel that we preached from the beginning. And he goes on to talk about the coming of Jesus and the fact that he not only lived and died and rose again according to the scriptures, but that he was seen by hundreds of witnesses. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to Peter, to James, to the 12. He appeared to 500 witnesses at one time, many of whom were still alive. 
In other words, they weren't shy or hesitant to, the fa- to say that there were eyewitnesses to the things that we've seen and declared to you. And what is it that they saw? They came and the tomb was empty. And the second thing is, he appeared to so many. So not only was the tomb empty, but he appeared in person to many witnesses. Uh, And some of you may be familiar with Chuck Colson's book, Born Again. But he made a powerful point. He said that between the time Watergate had been discovered, it took two weeks for John Dean, his personal counsel, to turn state's evidence against Nixon. And shortly after John Dean testified, all of Nixon's closest aides turned and, turned and uh, testified against him. And I thought to myself, if the resurrection were a lie, then you would have thought that with the prospects of beatings, imprisonments, and death, that someone would have pled a deal. And so Chuck Colson made this wonderful comment. You see, men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. But they will never give their lives for something that they know to be false. Brothers and sisters, what we believe is the truth. Corroborated by many witnesses. Not only witnesses that saw him in person, but who gave their lives for the testimony that they bore. Number three. Okay. I'm going to draw this to a close. Get away from my notes, and then I won't pay attention. Um, It's wonderful to know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. N.T. Wright wrote an 800-page book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, Pretty impressive book. Thoroughly researched historically. And as a first-class historian, N.T. Wright notes that in the time of the first century, up until the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no record of anyone believing that anyone would come back to life after they were dead. And here's the reason why. Up until that point, everyone who was dead stayed dead. (laughs) So there was a consistency there. Okay, and so you will read, you know, in in Virgil and in Homer and all of these other uh, versions uh, or myths of, uh, you know, the Elysian fields and all of the other things that were claimed about life after death. But no one believed that you would come back to a physical body after you had been dead. And so how is it that after the first century, not only this, did this belief spread, but it was the only, the only source of it was The Pharisees believed in the hope of Israel that somehow or other there was a promise of resurrection. And then the early Christian church, again, spread the news and gave their lives 
and went to their deaths singing hymns in praise and worship because they had confidence in the hope of the resurrection from the dead. So it isn't enough to know that Jesus rose from the dead. It's your promise as well. Death is not the last word. And that by the grace of God, Jesus at his coming will raise us up to be forever with the Lord. That our joy may be made full. A lot to say about that. Whoops. But it's, that's reminiscent of John chapter 15 and verse 13. Verse 11, Jesus says to his disciples, He's about to be executed. He's about to be crucified. He's preparing them for his departure. And he says to them, I've said these things to you, that my joy may be in you. You're about to be killed, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, love one another. Here's the tie-up. We've been talking about, I am still here. I, I, I used to seek the Lord because I wanted to have some kind of Revelation chapter 1 experience, kind of Moses on the mountain kind of experience. You know, come back with my hair on fire, and, you know, just, <laughs> just lit up like, you know the skin of my face showing because I've had an encounter with the living God. And I did that for months. And I kept complaining to God, Lord, you're not cooperating with the process. You know, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. And I quoted God all these words in the Bible that he didn't know. You know, and I just told him about how he needed to cooperate if he wanted to produce some results, you know, light up the room, do something. And it was made evident to me, I'm in my people. Love, you love me, thank you. Love my people. Give yourself to my people. As we gather in the name of Jesus, there he is in the midst of us. I believe God wants to restore that awareness that we would come to see not only his presence in our corporate gathering, but his presence in our homes, restoring the love of husbands to wives, wives to husbands, renewing that love, recognizing the treasure that you've been given in each other, the treasure that parents have in their children, the gift that they are, the value that they have, that parents and children could come to see the treasure that they have in one another, that we begin to celebrate the joy of family in our midst.